Let's pray. Well, thank you that you are our Father in heaven. We are born again through the Spirit of God, and we become part of your family. Lord, I, I pray these young ones would know you as their Father and know they're part of a bigger family, even than the family that, that, that they belong to each day. May they be instructed, Lord, in the friends of Jesus this morning on their level, that they would grasp your truth and, learn, and, and, and go forth to apply your truth. Lord, may that be true of us as we hear from you in the sanctuary. May we hear your truth and apply your truth to our lives that we might be your people transformed by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We greet you in, in Christ's name. We are in a sermon set series on the, the, book, the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're calling it Radical Love. Radical Love. It's a book about, it's a love story about the radical love of Ruth and Boaz and the radical love of God. This week, um, I heard about, about a woman named Carol Costello, who is a CNN reporter. I've seen her before because she actually was here in Baltimore for, for many years on her way up to the big time, Carol Costello. Uh, CNN. She did a, there's an article and she did a, a piece on the, on the, t- on the TV uh, that, that, that asked the question about the marriage apocalypse. Are you ready for the marriage apocalypse? Well, what's that all about? Well, she, she interviewed 10, she's a graduate of Kent State in Ohio, and she, interviewed, she went back and interviewed 10 journalism students from her alma mater uh, and asked some questions about, about life in, in, in the, up, the world in which we live. And, and in the area, area of marriage, uh, she said that the, the millennials, they, they envision uh, an American virtually marriage-free. So talk to any millennial, and you can envision an, an American-free uh, 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 America with, with everyone happily single. And as I saw that article, and, I, and, and watched online that... Uh, little piece she did. I, I, I was, I was said, boy, this is interesting what's going on. And then, then, then of course, the word kicked into my heart. And I, I said, okay, a, a world that's, that's marriage-free. And I thought about the, the Bible verse that talks about the days of Noah. The Son of Man will come. It'll be like the days of Noah. They'll be married and giving in marriage. So marriage is not going to come to an end. You're wrong, Carl Costello. It's not coming to an end. And, and I thought about just because love is not going to come to an end, because God has put something in us. He's planted something as a desire, a, a hunger for uh, unconditional love. And, and that's what this book of Ruth's all about. It's about this love that we yearn for. And as we look through this, this book, we're going to talk today uh, about the beginnings of love. Now, last week, Pastor Craig helped us to see the pain that Ruth had. But through that pain, she met the Lord. She met the God of Israel, became part of the covenant community of God, the people of Israel, even though she was an outsider from the people of Moab. But there was a high cost to her commitment to do that, a very high cost. Um, there was the very real possibility that she would be perpetually single. Widowhood. Uh, uh, in, in, here in chapter 2, we're going to see uh, the beginnings of God solving that problem for her. And that beginning com- the, the, the solution comes as she meets a man named Boaz. Boaz. Let, let, we're going to read this, this whole passage, chapter 2. Stand as we read this passage and listen to... Uh, Ruth chapter 2, ESV translation. As we, I'm going to help you understand that this, this is basically a day in the life of Ruth in chapter 2. Verse 1. Now, Mo, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, 
whose name was Boaz. It's a setting for us. Now let's look at what happened that morning at breakfast. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. This is now mid-morning. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, but, or, or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And we were thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given, by, to, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now it's lunchtime. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not rebuke her, reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Now it's dinner time. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And so Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. She lived with her mother-in-law. 
God's blessed the reading of his word. You may be seated. The beginnings of love. The beginnings of love. Boaz is a lord of the fields and he's a deliverer for Ruth. He will eventually uh, uh, deliver her, Ruth from the status of poverty and the status of, of being a childless widow. He is lord of the plantation, of the fields. He has servants. He has a foreman. He has women and servants under him. Boaz should remind us of someone else. Boaz, Lord and Deliverer, in him we see Jesus, our Lord, our Deliverer. Jesus is Lord of the, of the earth. He, in, in, in fact, in one of the parables, he said this comment in Matthew 13, the field is the world. He's Lord of the field, Lord of the world. All authority belongs to me, he said in Matthew 28. And Jesus is the Deliverer, the Savior. In John 4, 42, it said to the people of Samaria that he is, the, he is the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Deliverer. My procedure today, we're going to walk through this passage somewhat. I'm going to look at these, I'm going to look basically at the kindness of Boaz towards Ruth, something that it, you might miss if you just read it very um, quickly. And then we're going to look at the implications of that, how, how the love uh, uh, that we see here is a love that provides and protects and pursues. First, let's look at the first verse we see Ruth and Boaz. Let me talk about Ruth and Boaz a little bit. Last week, again, we opened up this whole idea of who they were, their, their background. Um, she is a widow. Um, she's been faithful to, to Naomi. In fact, we have the great, the great uh, uh, statement of commitment in verse 16 of chapter 1. Don't, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you when, when, when Naomi said, you can go. You don't have to go back with, with your people. No, she said, I'm going to be with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. Her commitment to, to Naomi and to Naomi's people, Naomi's God, the God of Naomi's people. Ruth makes this very strong covenantal commitment to stay with Naomi. Very strange, very courageous to be part of the people of God. She's willing to lose her old identity for a new one. That cost was too high for Orpah, who said, no, I don't want to do that. And she, she went back to the people of Moab. But Ruth was faithful. Now, this for her was a, was a high commitment. It was a commitment to possibly remain single the rest of her life, since that seemed to be, at that point, God's will for her. The, the author states in this chapter, he starts this chapter by, by telling us that there's a, there's a relative of Naomi's, a, a late husband's clan, whose name is Boaz. And that fact is very important as the rest of the story unfolds, because this man, Boaz, will change the entire situation of Ruth. Now, whether you're talking about um, Arthur Lawrence West Side Story or William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, there's something going on here that's very similar. And, and what we have in, in the world of literature, there, there's the, the, we're fascinated by stories of people from two sides of the track who get attracted to each other. That, that's, literature has always been fascinated by that. They meet, they fall in love despite the cultural differences, and they have a desire to live happily ever after. Well, long before Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story comes the book of Ruth, <laughs> And that's the kind of story that we have here. And it begins, the beginning of that story is in here in chapter 2. Two people from two different worlds. Ruth is young. She's a woman. She's a widow. She's poor. She, she's without a child. She's from the people of Moab. She's far from the covenant of, of God, the covenant of Israel. 
Boaz seems to be older because he calls her daughter. He's older. He's a man. He's rich. He's, he's single. He, he's an owner. He's rich. He, he owns fields and, and foremen and women and, 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 and servants. And, and he, he's, he's doing well. He's prospered. And, and yet he follows the God of Israel. He follows the God of Israel. He seeks to know the word of God, to follow the word of God. He's called a worthy man in the text. We will see that he treats his workers with a pleasant blessing from the Lord. He also talks about finding refuge in the shelter of the Lord's wings. He knows the word of God. In verse 2, he, it, it seems to be this morning conversation as they begin to think through this. And, and there's two things we learn there. One, that they're poor. and The poor were, were, were allowed to go into the fields and, and, and gather so, uh, resources for their, their, their um, food. And, and Ruth and Naomi, they, that's their plight. They are poor and desperate. It was a spring barley harvest season, which is about April and May, about the same time of year we have right now. Um, and Leviticus 23, 22, it commanded the people to, to the owners to leave something for the poor in their fields. We also know that Ruth also hopes that maybe she can connect with somebody who can take care of their needs. And Naomi likes that idea, so says, yeah, yes, daughter, go, go. And so she leaves for the day. Now, verses 2 to 17, we're going to look, carefully at, at Boaz's kindness to Ruth. He's kind towards her. And I've, I've looked at at least seven, I want to look at seven ways that we can see that he's kind to her because sometimes we miss this. We miss the fact that she's, she's responding to his kindness. The first act of kindness is he, he gives her permission to glean in the fields. You know, he didn't have to do that. He was commanded to do it, but he didn't have to do it. Some didn't do that. In verses three and four, it says, she just happened to wind up in the field of Boaz. That's God, that's providential language. There was no accident. God, God had orchestrated that. And uh, Boaz happened to be the owner of that field. In verse 5, he inquires to his foreman, it sounds like. It looks like about the new, the, the new there's a new face that he sees. And, and, and he says, who is this young woman? Who is who, Whose woman, young woman is this? Well, one commentator, Paul Miller, says, in the non-Western world, people are never defined individually. They are always understood in relation to a group, to be, be it a family, a village, or a clan. So he says, who's young? What, what family does she, does she belong to? Who is she? That's her identity. In verse 6, the foreman says that, that this is the one you heard about, that we've, that's been talked about, this, this woman from Moab who's come, uh, the, uh, the, Naomi's daughter-in-law, the one who's left her people, left her religion, to become part of our people. Now, at first, Ruth is probably afraid he's asking these questions because she thinks he, maybe he's going to kick me out. Maybe he's going he's to reject me. Maybe he doesn't like foreigners. Or, or maybe he's a male chauvinist pig. Or I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't want her there. He's going to say, no, get away from here. Go find another field. So she asked for permission and was granted permission to glean. So the first act of kindness is he gives her permission to glean. The second act of kindness is that Boaz encourages Ruth to keep close to, my, to the other young women. Keep close to them. This also tells the other women that they need to accept Ruth, though she's a foreigner, though she has, isn't part of their community. Accept her into the circle of relationship, the circle of fellowship. He endorses her very quickly. Kindness number three, he warns the men to leave her alone. Don't touch her. He protects her, protects her purity, protects her physically. The fourth act of kindness, Boaz gives Ruth access to the men's water when she needs to. 
when she's thirsty, he says, go, go get water. Go, go, the, the men's water fountain over there. You, can, you, go, you have access to it. It seems that that was maybe abnormal, that maybe not everybody could go there. Or maybe she, was, she, didn't, she wouldn't want to go near the men. She, yeah, go near the men because I've already told them don't touch you. So she's granted access. It seems like a, an extraordinary access that maybe others didn't have. It maybe shows some special sensitivity to her as a foreigner and as one with needs. Kindness number five. Verses 10 to 13, he just encourages her. Look at these verses. He encourages her greatly. Uh, in verse 10, she's astounded at the attention that, and the care that he gives. She falls to, his, to her face and she bows to the ground and, and says, why? Why me? What are you doing? What is this all about? And he says to her that, that, that she's been the topic of their conversations. And, and, and we heard about you and we appreciate uh, your faithfulness and your courageous uh, commitment to, 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 uh, to, to Naomi, your mother-in-law, to becoming part of the community and and to rejecting Chemosh, the God of the Moabites, to embrace the God of the Scriptures, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the only true and living God. He said, we've heard of that. We appreciate that. I want to encourage you there. So Boaz says that the Lord will bless her faith. It reminds her that there are rewards for the faithful. In verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Let me pause right here. You know, sometimes we, we need to remember that there are rewards ahead for those who believe. The scriptures say that. The, the scriptures talk about rewards. There's an old song by, by Andre Crouch, the late Andre Crouch, who died a few months ago. And it's a good song, but I want to talk about it. If, if heaven never were promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth it just having the Lord in my life, living in a world of darkness. You came along and taught me the light. And that... There's some truth in that song that, be, that, that the, knowing Christ, knowing Lord, Christ as Lord in your life, life begins to make sense. It's really nice to have a, a, a direction and a guide in a confusing world. So Andre is right to some point. But the scriptures also tell us that the, despite that truth, there are eternal rewards. There are future rewards for those who would believe. Because sometimes what we experience in life isn't easy. Sometimes our experience of life is, is, is like Ruth or Orpah's, and, and, and things don't always go as we want them to go. Harrison Johnson wrote another song years ago, Spirit. Some folk would rather have houses and land. Some folk would rather have silver and gold. These things that they treasure forget about their soul. So I've decided to make Jesus my choice. The road is rough. The going gets tough. The hills are hard to climb. But I started out a long time ago, and there is no doubt in my mind that I have decided to make Jesus my choice. And the scriptures say that for those who decide to make Jesus their choice, there are eventual rewards. There are blessings to come. Now, and if not now, in eternity. And Boaz simply says to her, you have followed the true and living God, and he's going to bless you. He's going to reward you. He encourages her in a great way. He says, the Lord is the one, verse 12, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. She's made that decision to come under him. Psalm 91, verse 4, he will cover you with pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. That's the illusion of this passage here. One commentator, David Hackman, says, the figure of the eagle is used in, in the, the books of the law as an image of God's power 
being utilized for the protection and the nurturing care of his people. Speaking of Israel, Moses declares, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32. And then the wings of which Boaz speaks in verse 12 symbolizes the power of the grace that Ruth is experiencing in protection and provision. Jackman's correct. Kindness number six. Boaz makes sure that she uh, has companionship during lunchtime. That might sound silly to you, but that's important. Boaz is considerate enough to know that lunchtime, her first day at work, could be a potential crisis. Now think about your first day at work, your first day of school. You know, you, you, you make it through the morning and that's lunchtime and everybody has their friends. And they go off. You're by yourself. Sixth grade, I was, uh, we lived in D Southeast D.C. It was February. On Friday, we said goodbye to our friends at, at Stanton Elementary School because we moved that weekend in February. And that Monday, we walked into um, James McHenry Elementary School in Prince George's County. Stanton was a school, I guess it was about 90% African American. McHenry was about probably 98% white. This was extreme culture shock for me. I, I was in sixth grade, which was the last year of the elementary schools back then. I was, uh, for that half year, I became the first graduate that was African American in that school. Um, and I, and I, I don't remember a lot of details of particular days, but I remember just how I always appreciated when somebody in my class would smile at me or would uh, 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 help me work with me during, during, during little time, work times, or would, would um, uh, play ball with me during recess. Those little things, sitting with you during lunch. Those little things when you're a stranger, when, when, there's, when you're in a different culture, the first day. Scary experience. Maybe you, probably you've had some of those kinds of experiences. Boaz is sensitive to this, this, this real cross-cultural experience for her. Don't miss that. Ruth eats till she can eat no more, in fact. And he sets her up with a huge bounty at the end of the day. He's going well beyond the call of duty of, one, of just an owner here. Takes care of her lunchtime. Kindness number seven is he makes sure she has a bountiful harvest at the end of the day, as the day uh, the, her first day of gleaning. It says she collects an ephah of barley. It's over half a bushel. One commentator says, uh, this is like earning half a month's wages in one day. This is a bountiful harvest that she had just that one day. Verses 18 to 23 now, she, she returns back to Naomi, you know, dinner time. And they talk. I'm sure Naomi's waiting to hear how the day went. They want to review the day, debrief, and... She gets, Naomi gets excited as she hears what God has done. He's provided uh, Boaz as an answer to, possibly answer to, to Ruth's situation. Naomi says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. It seems clear to her that Boaz might be attracted to Ruth and is doing all that he can to care for her. He's taking initiative. And she knows of Boaz and is excited that there may be a connection here, that he checked her out from what she can tell. In fact, the word is just that he took notice of Ruth. Took notice. An old song, favorite song, one of my favorite songs from the, from the day. In, in, in a cafe or sometimes on a crowded street. I've been near you, but you never even noticed me. Now, some of you know the song. 
My Sharia Moore by Stevie Wonder. I guess he was still called Little Stevie Wonder back then. I don't know. But you never notice me. Naomi says, Ruth, I think he noticed you. Remember when I first met Terry? It was about within a mile of here over at Loyola. Um, it was a meeting room, at, at, at meeting at uh, Loyola, the campus over there. It was a special speaker. The topic was comparative religion. And um, big, a lot of people in the room, um, I, she was across the room. I kind of noticed her, but didn't notice any, any particular. There was no particular noticing at that first time that I saw her. But through the weeks, I began to notice her a little bit more. Unfortunately, she didn't notice me yet, but that was coming. Through, through, the, through the months and year or two, we... The Lord brought us together. She eventually got the message that my eyes were on her and her alone. A friendship grew, and love began to grow. I say, we didn't fall in love. We grew in love. The problem that many have as they think of Ruth and think of love and marriage is they're waiting to fall in love. And let me suggest that you need to not think about falling in love. That happens to some. You think about growing in love. Now, we could talk for hours about that. It'll give me an hour here. You know, just a word of caution there. Some folks notice one another very quickly, and sometimes they don't. So don't be frustrated if you haven't been noticed or haven't noticed anyone. We live in a day when love is often misunderstood as kind of an emotional, romantic feeling only. It is more than that. A man and a woman with a settled, enduring, covenantal commitment to love one another in the presence of God and in the presence of the greater community and the angels and, and the demons. That's what makes marriage work. There are many times of joy and enthusiasm and emotion. There are other times of just covenant commitment to make marriage endure. Naomi knows that Ruth's only hope, though, from being delivered from her situation is to find a kinsman redeemer to emerge. A kinsman redeemer. She realizes that Boaz is qualified. This is a per person with a near relative who had the responsibility of stepping in to marry uh, the widowed women of their family. You, we'll talk about it more in the next couple of chapters because it's really the, the book's moving towards that. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. You can find out more about that as you read ahead. But Naomi affirms what she hears in this debriefing session. And in essence, she tells Ruth, child, I think that guy likes you. And sometimes uh, young women need an older person to, to say, I, I, I think I see what's happening here. Guys need that too. Sometimes guys, in fact, a lot of times guys don't realize what's happening. I think she likes you. We need sometimes someone who's wise, someone who's more objective, who can see what's going on, to step in and give us that encouragement. And that's what Naomi does here. Sometimes, you know, we can get so caught up in our own disappointments, in our own baggage, that we don't see that God is at work. God is already at work. And sometimes God, we need to listen to, to God who gives us someone to give us a word of hope. You see, that's the importance of community, this family of God we're talking about today. It's the importance of it. A community that includes people who know you and people who are wiser, maybe people who are older and wiser than you. That's why that's important. Okay, so that's the story. Now, what are the implications of the story for us? Because what we're looking at is the beginnings of love. And what I want you to understand is this chapter is the beginnings of love, Boaz's love for Ruth. But in it, we see some things about God's love 
for us. I want to look at three simple things about God's love. How has God loved us? He, you know, just as Boaz provided for Ruth, God has promised to provide for us, his people. Throughout the scriptures, we could use all kinds of scriptures. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He provides, he provides uh, green pastures and still waters and, and peace as we go through the valley of the shadow of death. He provides for his people. That's how much God loves us. Matthew 6, it says, he feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. Won't he also care for you, you of little faith? God provides for those who are his own. Do you trust him? Do you trust this one who says, I love you and provides for you? Who are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own ability, your own resources? Are you trusting in your family or trusting in the church? Are you trusting in the state? Who are you trusting for provision? Ultimately, you need to trust the Lord. Trust in him. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. These are the, these are the, the um, modern technology, the modern weapons of warfare, chariots and horses. Some trust in the state, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It doesn't say we don't have chariots and horses, but you don't trust in them. Ultimately, you trust in the name of the Lord your God. God's provision. I, I noticed this week the, the, um, the, the minimum wage protests, the fight for 15 were out. And um, there were over, I think, 200 uh, cities across America where people were, were on, on protesting uh, the, the need for minimum wage of $15 um, throughout various cities in, in the country. Thinking about that, um, I, I, I thought about entry-level jobs. I've been thinking a lot about that, uh, the need for entry-level jobs and all that. And often in, in, in those work environments, uh, it's not always pleasant for those who work there or for those who, who, who are served there, sometimes. Fast food joints are an example of entry-level positions, and of course, some of them are notorious for not having good customer service. And I say that to say that Friday, Terry and I were out doing errands, like on Fridays, and, and we were, it was lunchtime, and we went to a Chick-fil-A. Um, and that Chick-fil-A there was, is always crowded. And let's just go. Let's, we like Chick-fil-A food. It's really good. It seems to be a little better, the best fast food, I think, than other, chick, than other fast foods. That Chick-fil-A is our kind of place, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so we would say, let's, let's try Chick-fil-A today. They, they have created an excellent product and an excellent environment. I was very impressed with them. Um, we went in. Uh, the line was long, but the line moved. They took our order. We weren't, they, they said, we'll fix your order. Go, go get a seat. They, I went to the ketchup to get my ketchup. And then by the time I went to my seat, they were, they were, the food was there. The, 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 salad, the salad that Terry had was fresh. It was very fresh. I, was, I said, this is a fast food salad. This is really looks good. And they came and said, you want some more lemonade? I said, I, I thought I was in a restaurant. I got to tip this guy. I was thinking, you know, what's going on here? And, and then when we left, they, they, they helped us to the door. Have a good day. I was blown away. I said, is this a fast food joint? Where am I? But I thought about entry-level jobs and, and, and how, how important they are in a society and, and yet how, how we need to, to em, em, embrace uh, 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 that and I also thought about the poor and and what God says about those who are poor and, and how they need to to um, be served and cared for. Look, the, the poor in a society need resources to survive and they also need dignity. And see, see, they don't need a free handout. 
This passage, we see the beauty of the Old Testament system in this, in this, in this story of Ruth. See, God required the, the, the landowners of the nation of Israel to provide for the poor. They were commanded to do, to do that. To save some produce for those who passed by in need of grain. And so we see Ruth going out to find to the fields to pick. The, the New Testament church is now the people of God in the world. We're not the nation such as Israel, not a nation of Israel. So, so the church, the new Israel, is mandated to serve the poor. And it's always dangerous to think of America having a direct word of God to serve the poor, though America seems to have compassion for the poor in some ways. But our nation is not Israel. Never has been. Never will be. The poor are dependent on the benevolence of those who, like Boaz, have faith and, and, and have a compassionate heart for the needy and serve them. The, the alternative is that government must force those with resources to help the poor. Forced benevolence, if you can call it that. And again, we, we, hopefully we pay our taxes April 15th, just behind us, and, and, and hopefully when you paid your taxes, if you paid your taxes, you, you, you did that realizing that, that you're, you're helping the nation, and particularly those who in the nation who have needs. Hopefully that was the heart in which we do taxation. But I think there's a combination of both needs. There's taxation and there's benevolence, and we need both for a society to thrive and flourish. But the, the key to our national system working is not April 15th taxation. We need more people like Boaz. We need more people who have to have hearts for those who don't have. And that can't be forced. We need owners who care, owners who are concerned about more than the bottom line, owners who are seeking to apply verses like Colossians 4.1. They have to answer to, another, to their master who's in heaven. We need men of God who understand the heart of God. When John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus looking for signs that Jesus was really the Messiah, he said, tell them what you see. Tell them that you see the poor hearing good news. One of the signs of Messiah was he would minister not to the rich, not, but to the poor. The poor heard the good news. That's the heart of God. He came doing that. Even in the book of Acts, in, in Galatians chapter 2, excuse me, when, when, when God says to the church, uh, the, the Jerusalem leaders, it was Peter and, and James and Jerusalem leaders, they had their conversation with Paul about ministry to the Gentile uh, uh, people. And, and they, said, they, they said, okay, God bless you. Go minister to the Gentiles. And, and, but, but the last word they said in Galatians 2 in that paragraph is, but don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. That's the heart of God. That's, it always has been the heart of God. It still is. The church needs to take that seriously. And we try to do that as a church. We have a Lord who provides. We also have a Lord who protects. He protects us. Just as Boaz protected Ruth, we have the promise of God's protection. We, we, we saw Boaz uh, protecting her from men. In Scripture, we see a special protection of God for the weak and for the vulnerable. James chapter 1, 27. The, church, the true religion is those who care for orphans and widows in their affliction. The, the weak and vulnerable protection by the Lord through his church. Probably you've all heard uh, this week of the huge concern 
uh, about th those who are, are charged to protect citizens from danger have become the source of danger. This is this situation uh, with the police. This week, uh, we saw the problem in Oklahoma of uh, Deputy Robert Bates, who's a reserve sheriff, who grabbed his gun rather than his taser and tragically killed uh, Eric Harris. Tragic. Charged to protect, but he did not protect. I'm also very concerned, I hope you are, that we cannot protect our national capital. Did you hear about that story this week? Did you hear what happened? A mailman from Florida named Doug Hughes on a gyrocopter, he invaded restricted airspace. He wanted to deliver a special April 15th message to Congress. <laughs> he came in on his super bicycle, this gyrocopter, and landed on the grounds of the Capitol building. The question is, Who's protecting our leaders? Protection. Maybe they need secret service protection like the president has. Well, we know what that's happened there. Have you heard about the recent discussion about protecting children? Alexander and Daniel Mative of Montgomery County, they're a family, and they've been testing the laws on, 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 on children needing adult chaperones up to a certain age. And uh, they have, they're part of the free range parenting movement. They have kids age 10 and age 6, and they've trained them on how to walk home from a nearby park. And yet when people see that happening, they, they, they call 911, and the kids go to the police station, and the parent says, you didn't, where are our kids? They're, they're missing. And big controversy. It's going to become a, law, a legal situation, I'm sure, at some point. But the Child Protective Services against uh, this free-range parenting movement is something that we're going to be hearing a lot about. Um, heated debates, heated discussions going on about protection and what is wise in, in, in the world in which we live. You know what? Ultimately, the Lord is our protector. That's what we have to say. Ultimately, the Lord is our Ultimately, the Lord knows our days. I was looking at Job chapter 14. He's pretty depressed in that chapter. He's, the chapter starts out, a man who was born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. I mean, he's hurting in, cha in that chapter, chapter 14. Then a couple of verses later, he says this, since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, talking to God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So Job understands that our days are determined and that our months are determined by God. You know, that's a real comfort for those who know Christ and those who serve Christ and those who walk with him, that God knows when your last day will be. You don't, but God does. It's a source of comfort when you think about it. The Lord, our protector. Lastly, we have a Lord who pursues. He pursues us. Just as we see Boaz pursuing Ruth, the Lord pursues us. Boaz is strong and he's gentle and he initiates this encounter and, and he makes these many acts of kindness. Ephesians 2.7 uh, comes right before it. Two, two, Ephesians 2.8 says, by, by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Verse 7 says this. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God. Boaz's kindness to Ruth mimics the kindness of our God. God is gracious, loving, kind. Ephesians chapter 1, the, pre, the first 
chapter of Ephesians. He's, 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 he's blown away by the kindness of God, the grace of God, the, the pursuing love of God. He's so caught up with it that he violates all the rules of Greek grammar. Verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, we heard in the scripture reading, it's all one long run-on sentence that Paul, Paul begins that letter with a great doxology of praise to God for the gospel, for sending Christ for us. He's caught up in it. Just run on, on a run-on sentence, trying to give us a feel for what God has done sovereignly in giving us salvation. God initiates grace, his special love. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let me close with a couple questions. If you've never trusted Christ and you're wondering, what is this pursuing love all about? This love that pursues. How do I know that I'm being pursued by God? How do I know that God is lovingly, carefully, personally calling me to himself? Here's just a few clues I was thinking about. That you're sensing that your desires and affections are changing. God's doing something there. That you're no longer, you no longer enjoy the things that brought happiness to your life. You feel empty afterwards. You sense there must be more. Or you're just confused about life now. In the past, you thought you, had, you thought you understood it all. And now, things have come and you're not sure you understand stuff. You're just confused. Or when you do things that you know you shouldn't do, things you know are bad, you used to easily rationalize it away. But now, it's hard to rationalize it away. You still feel bummed out about it. The guilt won't go away. Because God is calling you. God is pursuing you. Or, or God brings someone or something, maybe, a, maybe a, a book or a song or some person. He brings them into your life and he just nags you. Something that you heard that keeps pointing you back to Jesus. Telling you that you've got to make some adjustments. God is pursuing us. God continues to pursue us. Those are the kind of things that happen in your life. Say yes to the Spirit of God. Don't ignore the promptings of His Spirit. Some will say the hound of heaven is pursuing. He's going to catch you. See, Boaz points us to a greater Lord, a greater deliverer, a greater protector, a greater provider. He points us to Jesus. That's the radical love. Not just the love of Boaz for Ruth. The love of our God for his bride, for his people. Romans 5 says this, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. No one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you have a love that pursues us, a love that chases us down, Lord. We, we, thank you that, that though we were running from you or apathetic to you, you didn't give up. You, 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 you brought your gospel to us and, and, and changed our mind and changed our hearts and changed our thinking, and we said yes to the gospel. How we thank you for that, Lord. And we would pray for anyone who's here, Lord, who's, who's in that process of pondering whether to, to make that step, that leap of faith. Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would say, I want you. You are mine. I've called you. Come, follow me. Do that work, Lord. Lord, those of us who know you, may we continue to, to walk in you, knowing your grace, knowing that you're a God who pursues us even when we fail you, that you call us back to yourself.
We thank you for your word. Help us to, to apply Lord, what we've heard this week that we might live as children of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's close with a benediction. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> May the love of God, our, our great heavenly Father, and the grace of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and the presence of the Spirit of God be with you. Amen.